Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 4, Rise of the Magonids. It was a hot September day in Philadelphia, and in a stately brick building that was then serving as the Pennsylvania State House, a group of well-dressed men were gathered round a large table on one end of a sweltering room. All were well-educated and well-known, most were fabulously wealthy. They were the oligarchs of their budding nation. Each took their turn signing a set of documents that had taken a summer full of bickering, political maneuvering, and compromises to write. The year was 1787, and the United States Constitution was finally ready. In those papers that lay stacked on the table was the blueprint for the government that myself and 300 million others live under today. They include Republican ideals that go back thousands of years, ideals like a legislative body, an executive branch, legal precedents that protect the property rights and citizenship for select members of society. All of these things are descended from Republican Rome. And sometimes, you don't even have to look that hard to find the influence. I mean, the United States Congress, right? It's made up of two bodies, the House of Representatives and the Senate. That's a direct allusion to the Roman legislature of 300 noblemen who, in name at least, were the foundation of the Roman government. And then you have our executive office of the president, which is a little bit different than the Roman consul. I mean, there's only one U.S. president, while there were usually two Roman consuls. But still, there are a lot of similarities between those two positions. I mean, if you want a couple examples of that, I mean, they have similar relationships with the legislature. They have command of the army. And as a cherry on top, where do you think the term veto comes from? I'll give you a hint. It translates to I forbid in Latin. And then for our final comparison, you have Roman law, which is the cornerstone of pretty much every legal code in the West. So it should be abundantly clear to you just how much we live in the shadow of all this Roman tradition, right? But let me give you something to think about. What if, assuming you're an American for this example, you wake up one morning and you turn on your TV if you have one, or maybe you just open up your phone, and there's the usual news story about how Congress is in gridlock, and instead of thinking to yourself about the Senate and the House of Representatives, you think about how those damn Adorim and Ham are at it again. When will they learn? And then maybe you scroll down or change the channel or whatever, and there's another story about how the SOTUS, that's Suffit of the United States of course, has fired yet another cabinet member, and now we have a completely new Rob Mahanet. That's just bizarre, right? I mean, you're well within your right to ask what the hell I'm even talking about. Well, I'm just giving you a very superficial example of what a United States government built on Carthaginian rather than Roman principles might look like. And don't get me wrong, I'm in no ways trying to say that if Carthage had won the Punic Wars that the present day would be exactly the same with the tradition switched. Trying to predict what the modern world would look like without Rome making it out of the 100s BC is virtually impossible. I'm just trying to demonstrate, admittedly on a surface level, how much the past frames our contemporary understanding, which really makes you realize how radically different things could have been for us if certain divergences had occurred. 
And as we go through this episode, where we'll be talking of politics, intrigue, war, and imperialism, and a completely different Republican government than what we're used to learning about, I want you to try your hardest to think like a descendant of Carthage and not of Rome. Now, this is going to be super difficult. Lots of historians would say impossible to do completely because, let's face it, you probably are a descendant of Rome, or at least your culture and all your biases are. But try, even if it's just for a minute, to imagine these institutions and people not in comparison to Rome, but as their own separate entities. As long as you can do that, I can say I've done my good deed for the day. So let's get back into things, shall we? When we last left off in what's becoming a pretty lengthy series on the history of Carthage, the Greeks had started to move west and infuse their culture with that of the Punic Mediterranean. Tensions were rising. We spoke last time about a couple of incidents, one where Greek people from Thera settled Cyrene in Libya, which countered Carthaginian ambitions in the region, and another where settlers led by a Greek who claimed to be a descendant of Heracles tried to found a city even further into Punic territory in Sicily and were rebuffed by an alliance of native Elimians and Punic peoples. I actually think I forgot to mention this in episode 3, but this second incident, which happened in 580 BC, actually led to a war between the Greek city-state of Salinas, one of the westernmost of the new colonies, which was very close by to where the settlers had tried to inhabit, and the Elimian city of Segesta, which had strong economic ties with Punic cities like Motia, Lilibium, and Panormus. By this point, the Greeks had settled all over the southwest and center of the island in addition to the east. Certainly, there was already justification enough for Carthage to make war on the Greeks. And indeed, Carthage would soon do just that and much more in the next few decades. It's time for me to introduce you all to a guy named Malchus. Malchus was the brief ruler of Carthage around the mid-500s BC, probably starting somewhere before 550. We really don't have exact dates. Now, when I say ruler... Don't go thinking he was a king, like Hiram was the king of Tyre. That's a huge oversimplification, one that both the ancient Greeks and the modern historians who reference him on a surface level make. We'll get into exactly how to describe his political position later, but for now, just keep in mind that Carthage was, throughout all of its history, oligarchical by nature. And another thing, Malchus was definitely not his real name. It comes from a 16th century classicist mistranslation of the Punic name Mazaeus or Machaeus. For simplicity's sake, though, and because if you ever hear about this guy outside of this podcast, he'll be called Malchus, that's what I'll be calling him as well. Still, though, when you hear his Latinized name, don't think of him through a Roman lens of the ancient world. He would have dressed in robes of rich purple, worn Punic jewelry and amulets, and prayed to Punic gods. With all that said, let's talk about his rise to power. Malchus got his start as a Carthaginian general. He was probably from a wealthy and influential merchant family of Phoenician descent. An effective military commander, he began his career as a general, making war on Libyan tribes in the interior. Remember that while Carthage had used diplomacy and trade to assert their dominance over the North African coast, they were still paying tribute to the Numidian kingdoms and other Libyan peoples that lived inland from the city. 
We mentioned in episode 3 that according to the Roman historian Justin, the Carthaginians refused to pay tribute to the Libyans at some point in the 500s, which in turn led to war. Well, Malchus was most likely involved in that refusal and the subsequent conflict. His army set about conquering city after city, expanding the Carthaginian hinterland to basically the northern half of modern-day Tunisia. This new territory would prove critical for the development of Carthage's agriculture. In the early days of the city, think episode 2, Carthage had been restricted by their limited hinterland, forced to hunt, fish, import fruit and grains from Sardinia and Sicily to feed the growing populace. In later years, though, Thanks to the lush grasslands and plains that Melchus helped to conquer, Carthage would become an agricultural powerhouse. Go and take a look at a satellite view of the North African coast and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about here. So after a break in the fighting with the Libyan and Numidian kingdoms, Melchus moved on to the Mediterranean theater. His army would campaign in Sicily for a time, but would not have the victories they had in Numidia. Seeking greener pastures, or perhaps bloodier battlefields is a better way of saying it, Melchus went to Sardinia to claim the neuragic fortresses of the interior for Carthage. And a quick side note here, because I really don't think I've brought this up yet, there's a reason I use the word fortresses. The very name Naragi, well, that's at least my bastardized pronunciation of it, comes from the word Naragi, which is the name that Italian archaeologists used to classify the sprawling citadels made of cylindrical stone towers that these ancient Sardinians built on their hilltops. Seriously, go Google this stuff, and you'll see exactly what Malchus was in for. Spoiler alert, he got his ass handed to him. The Carthaginian government was not happy with Malchus after all these setbacks, and as we're sure to mention in future episodes, Carthage had a habit of treating its defeated generals very harshly. As a general, even if a single battle didn't go your way, it was not uncommon to find yourself nailed to a cross. In this case, they sentenced Malchus and his entire army to permanent exile on Sardinia. Never again were they to leave the island where they had been bested. This, of course, did not go over well among the rank and file, and so they sent their own envoys back to Carthage pleading for pardon, only to be rebuffed. Next, they threatened to secure their own safe return by force, and this was brushed aside by the rulers of the city as well. While the next step was obvious to the army, they had to make good on their threat. Under Malchus's command, the scorned warriors set sail for the capital of their Punic Empire. The die was cast. They made camp right outside the city and put it to siege. Apparently, Malchus had picked up a trick or two in his time in Sardinia, going after all those hill forts. He backed the Carthaginians into a corner by intercepting all of the supplies coming into the city. The defenders became starved and extremely demoralized, and Carthage soon fell to its own rogue general. And then, right as Malchus's fortune seemed to be on the up and up, he had a falling out with his son. Now I'm going to give you Justin's account of this family feud before I lay the interpretations of both myself and modern historians on you. Justin, by the way, is our primary source on Malchus's life and times. Remember, he's the same guy who we rely on for the story of Alyssa's founding of Carthage, the guy who was writing an abbreviated version of a history of Carthage by one Roman, Pompeius Trogus. In fact, the passage I'm going to read to you 
comes only a couple paragraphs after the Alyssa legend, just to give you an idea of how condensed this text really is. Writes Justin, quote, At this time, Cartalo, the son of Melchus, the exiled general, returning by his father's camp from Tyre, whither he had been sent by the Carthaginians to carry the tenth of the plunder of Sicily, which his father had taken, to Heracles. And being desired by his father to wait on him, replied that he would discharge his religious duties to the public before those of merely private obligation. His father, though he was indignant at this conduct, was nevertheless afraid to obstruct him in the performance of his religious offices. Some days after, Cartalo, having obtained leave of absence from the people and returning to his father, presented himself before all the people, dressed in the purple and fillets of his sacerdotal dignity. When his father took him aside and said, Hast thou dared, most unnatural wretch, to appear before so many of thy miserable countrymen, thus arrayed in purple and gold, and to enter with all the marks of peaceful prosperity about thee, and exulting as it were in triumph into this sad and mournful camp? Couldst thou display thyself nowhere else to thy fellow creatures? Was no place fitter for it than where the misery of thy father and the distress of his unhappy banishment were to be seen? I have to add, too, that when thou was summoned on a short time ago, thou proudly despisest, I did not say, thy father, but certainly the general of thy countrymen. And what else dost thou exhibit in that purple and those crowns but titles of my victories? Since thou therefore acknowledgest nothing in thy father but the name of an exile, I also will assume the character, not of a father, but of a general, and will make such an example of thee that no one may hereafter dare to sport with the miseries and sorrows of a parent. He accordingly ordered him to be nailed in all his finery on a high cross within view of the city. End quote. So that went a bit Shakespearean towards the end, so let me summarize that all for you. This Cartalo, son of Melchus, is a priest of Melchart. Justin calls him Hercules or Heracles, but thanks to the last episode, we know who he really means. As a sacrifice to Melkart, Cartalo goes and takes some of the spoils of war from Sicily, remember that's one of the places where Malchus fought before Sardinia, to the temple back in Tyre, all the way back in Phoenicia. Around the same time, his father requests his immediate presence at the Carthaginian siege camp, but Cartalo ignores this and fulfills his duties as a priest first. Thus, you have the whole part about not seeing him as a father, but as a general, and vice versa. When he does arrive at camp, Cartalo addresses the soldiers in his fancy priest robes, which sends Melchus over the edge enough to go on that whole tirade and stick him up on a cross. What exactly are we to make of all this? However we choose to interpret Malchus's filicide, I definitely didn't Google the word for killing your own kids there, well, it says a lot about the nature and practice of history. I'm going to take a couple different approaches to show you what I mean. For starters, we could chalk all this up to Roman propaganda. Perhaps the story just plays into Roman narratives of filial piety. If you don't know what I mean, Roman legal code established the father of any family as the pater familias, giving him the literal power of life and death over his wife and children. So maybe Malchus executing his son after showing him disrespect reinforces his role as a leader, 
for anyone with Roman morals. Conversely, we could take Justin at his word. Perhaps dressing in your finest robes as a priest in front of an army really was some great transgression, and due to a lack of insight into Carthaginian cultural and religious practices, we just can't see that clearly. Alternatively, there could have been some underlying currents beneath the surface-level account that Justin gives us. Maybe there were reasons for Malchus's decision that are universal to human nature, that even we could understand. Dexter Hoyos, he's like the only historian that I could find who discusses any of this in depth, has some useful speculation. His best guess is that Malchus might have needed that money and his son's donation of it to the temple and self-identification as a priest before his son could have represented a very real and very dangerous betrayal. Unfortunately, given the one-dimensional nature of the account, we may never know the full story. A few days after all this occurred, Malchus gathered the citizens of Carthage in the city and explained to them the reasoning for his actions, how he and his army had been unjustly punished and how under his rule, the city would be free from tyranny. He killed ten of the nobles who had denied his request for pardon and resisted his regime. As for the rest, he showed mercy and set about ruling the city with his newfound influence. After a relatively short reign, though, Justin tells us, he was killed by conspirators in the government who thought he was trying to make himself a king. From then on, Malchus's name disappears from the historical record. Once again, we have to use speculation to fill in the blanks. Hoyos contends that Malchus must have made a lot of enemies among powerful Carthaginians with Libyan or Numidian ties during his early campaigns. Let's not forget that Carthaginian heritage is incredibly diverse, and while there were certainly many noblemen and women who traced ancestors back to Tyre, Carthage soon became much more than just a Phoenician city. It was probably also these same enemies, then, who pushed for Malchus's banishment after the failed Sardinian venture. After the assassination, there was evidently a period of political turmoil in Carthage. A new dynasty would soon rise from the ashes of Malchus's funeral pyre. This dynasty began when another general, Mago, climbed his way up the political ladder to become the most influential of all Carthaginian statesmen. I'm going to be pretty vague here with what exactly his role in government was because we'll be covering that in depth later in the episode. Even from the sparse details we are given about his rule, really just a paragraph from Justin, you can tell that Mago was an energetic leader. He apparently reformed both the Carthaginian military and imperial structure. This would have involved expanding the diverse recruitment pool that Carthage's armies drew from and consolidating power over all the Punic cities that were part of the very loose empire. He finally conquered Sardinia enough for it to be considered a Carthaginian territory, though there were definitely still some neuragic holdouts. Under Mago's generalship, the conflict in the North African interior that Malchus had been involved in continued and more lands were probably won by this enterprising new ruler. Those wars would continue off and on again for many years to come. Also in the years of Magadan rule that followed, conflict throughout the Mediterranean did not cease. And I'm going to warn you now, the next segment of this episode is going to be focused on roughly 70 years from 550 to 480 BC. We'll be hopping from island to island and continent to continent, and it might get a bit crazy. 
That's because I want to relay everything that these early magnate leaders did in chronological order, and well, their influence was really everywhere. And that's another reason why I'm doing things this way instead of discussing different regions and different segments. I want you to understand the scope of this area that the Maganids were now in control of. Now, they weren't directly involved in every event we'll be discussing, don't get me wrong, but as overseers of the military and foreign policy of Carthage, lots of these things were most likely done on their orders. So just stick with me here, because I promise we're going to be seeing the, some of the same recurring characters here, and everything that happens is going to culminate in a new era for Carthage in the end. With that said, let's start our journey in Corsica, with a battle that happened during the rule of Mago. In the last episode, we very briefly mentioned a small Greek presence on the island of Corsica, off the coast of Etruria and north of Sardinia. Well, the island is about to see a resurgence of Greek settlers. In the mid-500s BC, Greeks from Phokia, that was a region of Greek city-states in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, suddenly found themselves refugees. And if you happen to know what's going on in the Near East at this time, you'll instantly understand why. This was during the rise of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. That's the one from the 300 movies for the layperson. The legendary founder of the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great, had been campaigning all around the Near East for decades, conquering the Medes, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, including those Phoenician city-states that would never again know their own freedom, all the way up into Anatolia and Asia Minor, where they were in fact Ionian Greek city-states. In 540, after what must have been quite a journey, some of these Phokian refugees made their way to Massalia, which you might recall was the settlement that is now Marseille, and was also founded by Phokian Greeks. The Massalians didn't really have a ton of room for these newcomers, so they sent them south to the island of Corsica, and there they founded a city of their own, Alalia. Now, no one, besides the natives at least, probably would have minded if these settlers had just built their city, started trading with their neighbors like everyone else was doing, and left it at that. But resources were scarce on the island. And they did have a pretty decent knowledge of the sea. I mean, how do you think they got on Corsica, which is an island in the first place? So they decided to assemble a fleet and raid any merchant ships they could find. Yep, we're talking about straight-up state-sanctioned piracy. This new Alalian foreign policy did not go over well with nearby city-states. The Etruscans in particular were pretty pissed, and just look at a map if you want to know why. Alalia is right on the eastern coast of Corsica, which runs parallel to central Italy, so basically any ship that set out from an Etruscan harbor was now at risk of being pirated. Imagine the impact that would have on your economy. Even in modern times, with alternatives like air travel, that would be crippling. The Etruscans weren't the only ones feeling the heat, though. The Carthaginians, whose economy almost entirely revolved around naval trade routes, wanted those Alalians out like yesterday. They and the Etruscan League, which was a political alliance of the major Etruscan city-states, assembled a gigantic fleet to overwhelm those pesky pirates. The two navies met off the Corsican coast in an encounter that is known as the Battle of Alalia. According to Herodotus, the Greeks had 60 pentaconters, which are long ships with 50 oarsmen apiece. 
the Carthaginian and Etruscan force had twice that number. The Greeks fought tooth and nail, and probably deciding that it wouldn't be worth the effort to eliminate the entire fleet, their opponents retreated, technically marking the Battle of Alalia as a Carthaginian defeat. If it can truly be considered a defeat for Carthage, though, it certainly wasn't a crushing one. The Alalians apparently lost two-thirds of their fleet in the fighting, and the remaining ships were pretty heavily damaged. It would be easy for Carthage to simply rebuild and replenish their ships and smash the weakened Greek force. There was nothing for it. The Greeks knew they had to evacuate. They gathered the inhabitants of the city on their remaining pentaconters and once again became refugees, this time sailing for Regium, a Greek city on the very tip of southern Italy. This allowed the Etruscans to claim Corsica for themselves, but the years of piracy had severely weakened them. Trade between Carthage and the Etruscans now became much more one-sided, so Carthage was really the only party that came out of the Battle of Alalia in better shape. Mago would die in 530, ten years after Alalia, and would go on to have two sons. These were Hasdrubal and Hamilcar, both the first of their name, and they would overtake their father in what old-timey historians like to call greatness. Basically, they were very effective generals and the unofficial emperors of the state. Hasdrubal, in particular, was honored more than any Carthaginian statesman back in his city. So, for the next part of this episode, we'll be jumping around the boundaries of the Carthaginian Empire to look at all the fires these Hasdrubal and Hamilcar characters had to put out. First, they apparently continued the war for the North African hinterland that had started before they were even born. Despite all the gains that Carthage had made over the years, the Libyans seemed to have ultimately won the wars, as Carthage once again began paying them tribute. Now, immersed in colonial and imperialist narratives as we are, we're used to the idea that military defeat is a sign of civilizational decline. To this day, we often measure the greatness of peoples and nations by how much territory they were able to conquer. But remember, we're trying to think like Carthaginians instead of Romans today. And for the Carthaginians, there was honor to be found in profitable coexistence. Paying what was effectively a bribe to the Libyans might have been a small price to pay to avoid a war of attrition, which historically, the Carthaginians were not very good at fighting. Meanwhile, another distant empire was doing pretty well for itself, and the two Magnid brothers would soon find another contender knocking at their door. The Persians had taken the Near East with shocking speed, and were starting to flex their newfound muscles a bit. In 525 BC, Cambyses II, the son of Cyrus the Great, who we talked about earlier, organized an expedition to take Carthage. His father had conquered an unprecedented amount of territory, creating an empire that Cambyses had already added to with his recent conquest of Egypt, and even further west than that, the Greek city of Cyrene. Now that the great powers of the east and west shared a border, they were natural adversaries in the eyes of the Persian king of kings. But Cambyses' plan to nearly double the breadth of his empire ran into a bit of a snag. Herodotus explains it like this, quote, When his men had set out to go after the fish-eaters, he ordered his navy to sail against Carthage. But the Phoenicians refused to go, for they said they were bound by solemn oaths and would commit no impiety by fighting the sons of their own people. Without the cooperation of the Phoenicians, the rest of the navy was inadequate for this campaign. 
so the Carthaginians escaped being enslaved by the Persians. End quote. You see, the Persians didn't really have a navy of their own. I mean, why would a kingdom from present-day Iran need a navy? When they became an empire, though, they would conscript their subject peoples to serve in the military using whatever weapons or tactics they were most proficient with. Thus, the Phoenician fleets became a prized Persian possession, and in an incredible move that really indicates the unique capabilities of the Phoenicians, they actually saved Carthage from what would have been a costly war with their refusal to fight outright. Sometime at the end of the 500s, the tendrils of Maganid expansion reached the shores of the Iberian Peninsula. The only specific record we have of this is once again from Justin, who claims that Carthage brought Gadiz under their wing. Here's what he writes on the subject. Quote, then, after the reign of the kings, the Carthaginians were the first to take Hispania under imperial control. For when the Gadatani, on the orders of a dream, transferred the Sacra of Melkart from Tyre, from where the Carthaginians also had their origin and founded a city there, the peoples of Spain, jealous of the growth of the new city, as a result made war on the Gadatani. The Carthaginians sent help to their kinsmen. In a successful campaign there, they both saved the Gadatani from injury, and to their greater injury, added part of the province to their own empire." End quote. So evidently, this was a carpe diem moment for the Maganids, more of a reaction to opportunity than a planned campaign. But they did indeed seize the day, and so Gadiz became another one of those Punic cities under Carthage's control. But guess what? Now we're heading into North Africa. You getting whiplash yet? In 515 BC, yet another band of Greek settlers, guided by residents of Cyrene who knew the area, tried to settle even closer to Lepkis Magna. They were led by a Spartan prince by the name of Dorius, who was not chosen to become king and instead chose to make the most of his life on the very frontiers of Greek civilization. Now, a couple of Dorius's brothers did actually get to become Spartan kings, and there's one of them that I guarantee you, you've all heard of. That's right, for those of you who've guessed already, this Dorius guy's brother is none other than Leonidas, aka Leonidas for all you Americans out there. My own personal non-historical image of the relationship between this two is with an upright moralistic Leonidas leading his 300 Spartans into battle and asking not the reason why and all the rest, well, drunk Uncle Dorius is out in the colonies tearing it up. Again, pretty interesting how interconnected ancient history is. So, Dorius heads to this new spot with his band of settlers and calls it Sinops. Unfortunately for him, though, this area was not exactly uninhabited. Both Carthage and the Libyans native to the region were furious with this brazen incursion into their territory. Within just three years of Sinops's founding, an alliance between Carthage and Libyan kingdoms had destroyed the colony and scattered its inhabitants. Dorius managed to escape and fled to Magna Graecia. At the same time, on the island of Sardinia, the Hasdrubal and Hamilcar duo were stirring the pot. Together, they waged war on the last holdouts of Neuragic civilization and made significant gains. This victory came at an immense cost, however. In 510, Hasdrubal was killed in the fighting, leaving Hamilcar in charge of the Magnate dynasty. Moreover, the conquered peoples of central Sardinia would be a thorn in the side of Carthage for the next several decades, despite the fact that 
all of Sardinia belonged to Carthage by 500 BC. We actually have accounts of Carthaginian generals having to suppress revolts all across the island. Surprise, our old favorite fun uncle Doris is back, and this time, he's trying to settle in western Sicily. According to Justin, he was actually encouraged to do so by some of the Greek city-states on the island, who saw an opportunity for expansion after Hasdrubal's death in Sardinia. We really don't have a way of confirming that this was some sort of concerted effort, though. Either way, Dorius and another band of settlers tried to found a colony on Mount Eryx, which is all the way up on the very western coast of Sicily, facing Africa. This was probably the most egregious attempt at colonization the Greeks had made so far, and as such, it sparked yet another skirmish on the island. The Punic cities teamed up with their Olympian allies and took on Dorius, killing him this time and his followers in battle. Outraged, Greek Sicilian cities waged war against Carthage and the natives for some time after, although a settlement was eventually reached. It is very likely that Carthage had a hand in funding the armies of the Punic cities. The Greeks were beat back for now, but after the martyr of Dorius, more conflict was sure to come soon. Now we need to circle back to the Near East for a sec. At around the same time as the whole Dorius debacle, there was a new Persian emperor in town, and he took a different approach to foreign policy in the far west. Darius was a Persian general who seized control of the throne in 522 BC, and after consolidating his power and fixing the administration of Persia, he was ready to go raise some hell. According to Justin, he tried to get Carthage to join his war against the Greeks, you know, the one that was decided at the Battle of Marathon at 490. The Carthaginians, of course, refused. I mean, they had a plethora of smaller wars they were already involved in, but imagine where history might have gone if any of these interactions with Persia had gone differently. These Mediterranean and Near Eastern worlds were not as separate as you might imagine. But while they didn't participate in the Greco-Persian Wars that are so famous to this day, Carthage nevertheless had plenty of Greek enemies that they would soon find themselves embroiled in conflict with. We're nearing the end of our excursion, but there's one more little detail we should cover before we get into the next phase of the episode. One of Hamilcar's achievements after his brother's death was signing the first treaty with the rising power of Rome in 509 BC. Carthage, of course, had trade relations with the Latin and Etruscan cities all over Italy, but now that Rome was conquering its neighbors, they were relevant enough for Carthage to start dealing with them too. The agreement prevented Rome from sailing into the western Mediterranean and limited their trade with places under Carthaginian dominion, like Sardinia and western Sicily. In return, Carthage promised not to move into Italy and would delegate any Italian conflicts they became involved in to the Romans. Now, if this sounds extremely one-sided to you, you're absolutely right. I mean, the signing of this document if you were a Roman merchant means that you literally couldn't sail west past a certain extent, or risk being sunk by Carthage on principle. It just goes to show that Carthage was the absolute dominant power of the West during this time, as weird as that may seem to all of us now. So far, we've been bouncing all over the Mediterranean, covering the many wars and diplomatic dealings of these lively magnate brothers Hasdrubal and Hamilcar I. But now we arrive at our final destination. 
a place that Carthage will fight tooth and nail for in seven brutal conflicts over the next few centuries. The breakneck rise of magnet power that we just witnessed allowed for these wars, known as the Sicilian Wars, to be possible, because it established Carthage as a threat. Let's talk about what's going down in Sicily. Sicily is going to go through a period of significant change in the beginning of the 400s, so we need to set the stage a little bit. Now, for any of you that know a lot about the Greeks in Sicily or the Sicilian Wars, please forgive me, because I'm about to boil this fascinating era for Greek politics down to the simplest terms. This is a series on Carthaginian history, after all. Politically, many Greek cities began to be ruled by tyrants, which, by the way, is a word that you need to think about not in its modern context with all those negative implications and connotations. A Greek tyrant was simply an autocrat who had absolute authority over his city-state. He was not necessarily evil or oppressive for the standards of the time. In fact, there were many tyrants that were praised by their own citizens. A lot of these tyrants wanted more lands and resources, because remember, Sicily was a relatively small island that was growing in population every year. And so during this political shift, the Sicilian Greeks became more divided than they ever had before. Old ethnic rivalries between Dorian Greeks and Ionian Greeks were accentuated as tyrants fought and conquered one another, and eventually, Sicily became politically divided between Ionians in the center north, Dorians in the south and east, and Carthaginians in the west. I'm going to fast forward over a lot of the backstabbing, political infighting, and discarded tyrants, but all of this culminates in an alliance between the powerful Dorian city-states of Akragas and Syracuse. They were ruled by the tyrants Theron and Gelon, respectively. Now, Syracuse is going to become a Sicilian superpower in the next couple centuries, and from here on out in the series, we'll be mentioning it quite frequently. Gelon was one of the first of these powerful Syracusan tyrants, but he certainly won't be the last. So now I've introduced you to this absolute powder keg of a political landscape, but the question is, what's it going to take to ignite it? Our sources, Herodotus and another Greek historian from Sicily named Diodorus Siculus, concur on the major points. It all starts when Theron, the tyrant of Akragas, remember, is looking to expand his influence further west. In 483 BC, Theron arranges for the tyrant of the Ionian city Himera, which is up in northern Sicily, to be deposed by his wealthy elite citizens. This tyrant of Himera, a guy named Tyrillus, is naturally pretty pissed at this, so he goes to the other major power on the island for help, Carthage. Theron, in turn, requested aid from Gelon of Syracuse, who was the most powerful Greek tyrant on the island. And the war was on just like that. Now in general, the Ionians got along much better with the Sicilian natives and the Punic cities than their Dorian brothers did. They certainly treated a lot of their non-Greek subjects better than the Dorians, which is a nice way of saying they didn't butcher or forcibly relocate natives to the same extent. This might have been at least part of the reason why the Magonids answered the call. The other being that they were going to literally take any chance to weaken the Sicilian Greeks that they could get. Either way, they took their sweet time raising an army, and in 480 BC, that's three years later, they were ready. Hamilcar, because remember, 
he took his brother's place after Hasdrubal died in Sardinia, led a sizable force into Sicily. Now I have ancient sources in front of me that are claiming that Hamilcar's army was some 300,000 men strong. On top of that, he supposedly had a ton of chariots, and those are just the numbers for the fighting force. We often forget that it takes a group of people almost the size of a whole other army to support these kinds of operations. In this case, 3,000 transport ships and 200 triremes. Because remember, this was the period where the trireme had replaced the bireme and the pentaconter, truly the golden age of naval ancient warfare. Now, I bet some history nerd like me was throwing a conniption fit when I listed off those numbers to you, because they are almost certainly inflated. This is a pretty common practice for ancient sources. Look no further than Herodotus's numbers for the famous Battle of Thermopylae. There's just no way, given what we know about population metrics of this age, that there were a million Persian soldiers with Xerxes outside the hot gates. But back to Himera. If you really want to find out what the Carthaginian numbers looked like, then your best bet is just to refer to the Greek numbers that the same sources use. Gelon's army was supposedly around 50,000 strong, and Theron probably had a slightly smaller force. So my best guess is that Carthage was bringing maybe a little over 100,000 soldiers to the fight. These men were from all throughout the empire and even beyond. Libyan and Punic spearmen, Iberian proto-hoplites and Celtic and Sardinian swordsmen, all of them capable of skirmishing to some extent with javelins and missiles, made up the infantry alone. We'll definitely save the rest of this discussion for a future episode, but Carthage's military was mainly made up of specialized mercenaries from every nook and cranny of Europe and North Africa. It made them an incredibly versatile foe, as the Romans would discover centuries later. But back to our story. According to Diodorus, Hamilcar has some options about where he wants to land. He's going up against two different armies, after all. Ultimately, he chooses to head immediately north and make a beeline to Himera. Restoring Tyrellus is going to be his first priority. This, of course, involves a longer time at sea than if he were to just land in the south and then march his way up with his army. Unfortunately for him, though, his fleet runs into a severe storm in the north, which sinks most of his chariots and puts a good deal of his ships out of commission. When he stumbles into Panormus, that's a Punic city on the northwest coast, remember, modern-day Palermo, actually, he has to let his army recover for a bit before getting to Himera. Then, he and his ground forces head east along the northern coast of Sicily until they arrive near the city, where Theron is boarded up inside with the garrison of Himera. Theron had his own army, the one from his home city of Akragas, on standby, not too far from the city in case he would need them later. The fleet heads parallel to the column of marching soldiers. That's gotta be a bit encouraging, right? You know, you're marching along the verdant coast of Sicily and you can see all the ships in the distance. When Hamilcar finds a spot to the west of Himera that he thinks is defensible, he sets up a camp right on the beach where he puts all the ships and a portion of his men. Then, south of his coastal camp, he sets up another military camp on a hill with his main force and sets to work building defenses for both of them. On his orders, the transport ships unload all of their provisions at the beach camp and head to Sardinia and Libya to return with more, in case the army needs to wait out the Greeks for a while. 
Hamilcar has now established defenses, secured enough food to keep the morale of his army in check, and now had a sense of the terrain that he's fighting on. It's time for his army, which outnumbers the enemy, by the way, to strike. He selects a particularly large, strong section of his forces and tells them to approach the city and report back when they know the intentions of Theron's troops. Theron decides to sally forth and sends the Himeran soldiers in the city to meet this Carthaginian force in a pitched battle outside. Not a great move on his part, as those troops are decisively defeated, and his only hope for rescue is to call for Gelon all the way back in Syracuse. Well, in the ensuing days, Gelon marches his more formidable force north to meet Hamilcar at Himera, but things kind of spiral out of control from there. He sets up a camp that's as equally well defended as Hamilcar's, but he doesn't do it close enough to make his presence known to the enemy. Instead of marching out to meet Carthage in full force, Gelon sends his cavalry to go scout the area, and what do you know, they stumble upon a great portion of Hamilcar's army in the open field, foraging for food, and not in formation. So the cavalry rounds up and captures this pretty significant number of Hamilcar's troops. Diodorus tells us about tens of thousands. I'm not sure whether to believe him there, you know, given the whole inflated numbers thing, but at this rate, it's enough to even the odds. Then, Gelon gathers the broken Himeran force and reorganizes them, so now he has even more troops in this hidden camp. At the same time that all of this is happening, Hamilcar was busy with preparations of his own, though. He sent a courier down south to the city of Salinas, asking for cavalry to support him. Given the fact that he had lost his chariots and horses in the storm on the way to Panormus, this was a pretty prudent move. Unfortunately for him, though, this poor courier was intercepted by that same cavalry that had run into Hamilcar's foragers, so Gelon actually found out about this request and decided to use it to his advantage. Gelon waits a day or two and then has his own cavalry dress up like the reinforcements from Salinas, and they march north to the Carthaginian beach camp, where Hamilcar is biding his time. Now, as if to secure some sort of, like, X-factor, some extra advantage for the coming hostilities, Hamilcar has been making a sacrifice to a Punic god. Diodorus says it's Poseidon, but that's almost certainly not true. That's one huge difference between ancient warfare and modern warfare, is religion. In some of these ancient battles, unimaginable things will happen, stuff that wouldn't be so important today, but in this context is enough to completely turn the tides of history. Oftentimes, you'll have religious rituals or augury, that's the art of predicting future outcomes, affect the day-by-day, hour-by-hour decisions on the ground, and this is just a small example of that. So, for example, when these disguised horsemen come into the camp and instantly start hacking everyone to bits, Hamilcar is caught unawares, as you would be if you're in the middle of a complicated prayer. Gelon's little ploy had worked better than probably even he had expected it to. Hamilcar was slaughtered along with everyone in the coastal camp, and the remaining ships were set on fire. Now put yourself in the shoes of the remaining Carthaginians here, you know, the ones that are stuck on the hill encampment. They're mostly battle-hardened Iberians, so they've been in some sticky situations before, they've seen their fair share of death, but even this must have been unnerving. 
You can see the billowing cloud of smoke in the distance, knowing that your only means of escape is quite literally going up in flames. You might even be able to hear the faint screams of your comrades being butchered. You know that your general was with them too, so any sort of plan or further knowledge of the tactical situation that you're now in is completely out the window. Now you're just stuck on this fortified hill with limited supplies, and oh yeah, there's a Greek army ready to pounce. That, folks, is an oh moment. And pounce is exactly what Gelon did next. He sent his infantry north up the hill where the Carthaginian soldiers engaged them in their last-ditch effort to survive. But this wasn't going to be as straightforward as Gelon thought. As much as he had already done everything in his power to disadvantage the Carthaginians, those Iberian spearmen were heavily armored and their disciplined phalanx formation was perfect for defense. They held their ground and actually began to repel the wavering Syracusan and Himeran attackers. If things had stayed this way for a little longer, Carthage might have actually won the battle and maintained their influence this far in Sicily. But, if you've been paying close attention to this story, you might already know that the Greeks had one more trick up their sleeve. It was at this moment that Theron and his army, which remember had been kept in reserve near the city proper until now, smashed into the Carthaginian flank. A complete rout ensued and thousands of Carthaginian mercenaries were either killed or sold into slavery. A lot of the specific story beats that we just went through, the storm, the deception with the letter, Hamilcar's religious practice, those are all relayed from Diodore Siculus, who was not exactly a contemporary source. He was writing about Himera 500 years after the fact. There's good evidence for a lot of his claims though. Other sources agree that Hamilcar died in the beach camp, for example, although some chalk his death up to suicide or trickery from Gelon once he saw that he had no hope of making it through the invading cavalry alive. We also have physical remains that let us pinpoint where exactly the battle occurred, and it matches up with Diodorus' description. A mass grave of Himeran casualties from the battle was found in 2007, one of the greatest archaeological finds for this period, by the way. And honestly, I'm pretty inclined to take Diodorus mostly at his word. He's a pretty good historian for the standards of his time, and without his account, what are we really left with? Sometimes, for the sake of relaying the drama and emotions that must have played out in this battle, you have to take that leap of faith. One thing is for sure, though. The Battle of Himera had ended in utter disaster for Carthage. When word traveled out of Sicily that Hamilcar had been killed and his army destroyed, the people back in Carthage lost their minds. A panic overtook the city as an invasion by Gelon seemed inevitable. But the Carthaginians had a stroke of luck, because Gelon, who had won himself a ton of slaves and riches to take back to Syracuse from his victory, really didn't feel the need to sail into North Africa and start a whole other campaign. The Carthaginians didn't know this though, and it took several years for things to return to relative normalcy. But just because the chaos of imminent siege was over doesn't mean that ripples of radical change weren't being felt all throughout the empire. Post-Hemera Carthage would never again be the same. And now we come full circle to how I introduced this episode. The Maganid expansion into new lands and the crushing defeat at Hemera 
were the catalyst for the Carthaginian Republic that great figures like Hamilcar Barca and his sons would be born into. The powerhouse of a state that almost triumphed over Republican Rome. And just as the Roman Republic evolved as an expression of autonomy from the Etruscan-backed kings that once ruled the city, so too did the Carthaginian Republic originate from a set of political circumstances with quirks and features that made it able to govern a Punic culture and deal with uniquely Punic problems. What I'm trying to say is that as I go outline the future of Carthage's new government, I don't want you to think of it as some mirror image to Rome. All of these systems and positions and people exist in a Punic cultural context, and we owe them our understanding. Republican government is not an exclusively Western or Greco-Roman invention. With that said, let's take a tour of the extensive reforms that made Carthage a true republic in the next several decades and centuries. But if we're going to dive right into years of political reforms, it's probably a good idea to know where exactly those reforms are coming from. Very early on in Carthage's history, we're talking within the first hundred years of its founding, a colonial governor from Tyre was for all intents and purposes the autocrat of the city. This figure was likely advised and influenced by the wealthy Tyrian merchants and statesmen who had participated in the founding of Carthage and later by their descendants. Now over time, as Tyre faced domestic challenges that loosened its grip on its colonial hegemony, all of those invasions from Assyria, for example, those wealthy elites slowly seized autonomy from the mother city. Even after Carthage became politically independent, though, this governor position was still there. It had just evolved into something called a suffet. The early office of the suffet was heavily curtailed by the oversight of the governing body called the Adurim, which, you guessed it, had evolved from those wealthy Punic oligarchs back in the old days. Now as we continue, please note that these two terms, Adurim and suffet, have special significance and powers in the Carthaginian Republic. These early incarnations of them are, well, early, and therefore not very well understood. What we do have evidence in this period of Carthaginian history, though, is the role that having Phoenician, especially Tyrian heritage, played in government. Carthaginian remains indicate that it was incredibly prestigious to have Phoenician ancestry, and proud Carthaginian statesmen would inscribe their names of such forefathers on their property. This exclusivity would change in the later years of the Republic with the growth of the Empire. So where exactly does all this tie in with our narrative of Melchus and the Maganid dynasty? Well, after Melchus staged his coup and took over the city, he probably had himself appointed Suffit. His political opponents, who eventually had him deposed and executed, were probably disgruntled members of the Adrim, with ties to Libyans that had suffered in the wars for the North African interior. Mego, although he too started out as a general, became another extremely powerful Suffit when he took things over after Malchus. His sons, Hasdrubal I and Hamilcar I, held the same title, Hamilcar taking it after his brother's death. Generals in this early system were probably anyone who had enough money to afford an army of mercenaries and could convince the Adlerim that a military expedition would be profitable. All of this is why I've adamantly refused to call Carthage a kingdom thus far. 
likening it instead to a very selective merchant republic or oligarchy. No matter what mistranslations the Greeks might have made, Carthage was never a true kingdom. Thus far, we've only really described the status and affairs of a select few people. What about the more everyday inhabitants of the city and its empire? Well, first, slavery existed in the Carthaginian system, like it did pretty much everywhere else until very recently in world history. Slavery as a Carthaginian institution was similar to how we think of it in Greece and Rome. Slaves could be freed by their masters or even buy their freedom and, with some luck, work their way to the top of society. This became even easier as the Republic emerged from the old oligarchical system. Slaves, according to our sparse array of Carthaginian records and inscriptions, did seem to retain some close ties with their masters after they were freed. Dexter Hoyos theorizes that the Carthaginians may have had ideas of patronage, a relationship of mutual responsibilities between former slaves and masters, similar to how the Romans viewed the same issue. Now, let's move a few more rungs up the societal ladder. Carthaginian citizenship was likely selective. The lower classes of the city, slaves, freedmen, laborers, etc., did not share the same political rights as the middle and upper classes. By the time of the Republic, the biggest factor that determined citizenship was wealth. Here's an example of where it's important not to think of Carthage like you would think of Rome, because this is a huge cultural difference. In the Roman Republic, you could have merchants, landowners, and other quote-unquote capitalists who could make ludicrous sums of money, more than most politicians and senators and the like, and still be labeled part of the middle class, the equites, politically inferior to senators with generations of noble ancestry. In Carthage, it seems that class depended a lot more on money and merit than birth. Even lowly artisans or merchants could become citizens or powerful statesmen. Here's another cool and unique concept. Lots of citizens belonged to organizations called Mizrahim, which functioned as social and special interest groups that often feasted together. It's debated amongst scholars just how much influence these Mizrahim had in politics. Were they like many political parties, social clubs, something in between? We have yet to uncover the truth. We do know that Carthaginian citizens took pride in their Mizrahim. All the inscriptions of various ones on Carthaginian artifacts tell us this. Some were religious, that probably played some sort of role in the frequent dinners that each Mizrahim shared. Many of them also required some sort of religious tribute or sacrifice to retain membership. Just one of those little things that must have been an enormous importance to flesh and blood people like you and me, but to us, just appears as a lone detail in the fragmented history of a lost civilization. So now we have a pretty good idea of what Carthaginian society looked like. Well, maybe pretty good is an overstatement, but it's the best we're going to get. Now let's take a look at the institutions of the Carthaginian Republic, shall we? The executive power of the state lay in the Suffetes, two of which were selected for single-year terms. This was one of the major changes made after Himera. No longer would the loss of a single Suffete on the battlefield lead to a calamitous scramble for a successor. To be one of these two Suffetes was a prestigious position, similar to how the consulship was in Rome. Don't go thinking that they're synonymous, though, just because there were both two of them. 
it required at least one Carthaginian citizen as a parent and a significant amount of wealth. The powers of the Suffites range from oversight of domestic and foreign policy to some sort of judicial review. This last bit is evident from the very root of the word, which comes from the Canaanite term shopatim, or judge. We also have plenty of evidence of Suffites directly commanding troops in the field. Next, of course, we arrive at the Adri. Now, it would be pretty lazy of us to make a direct comparison to the Roman Senate, which brings to mind a body of 300 men in togas proposing laws and decrees. I'm sorry, Roman history buffs, I know that's a pretty giant generalization of the Roman Senate, but thanks to the name of the modern American legislative branch, that's the common mental image that they evoke. While the Carthaginian elite did actually wear some form of togas, they actually had a custom of keeping their hands hidden as a sign of respect, which the Romans found womanly and mocked them for, the Adurim was far from just a legislative branch. This body of powerful figures worked very closely with the Suffites in all matters, from lawmaking to executive actions to declarations of war and peace. In fact, both the Adurim and the Suffites had to agree unanimously for any major decision to be made. If they didn't, it was actually put to vote in a body called the People's Assembly, which we'll get to in due course. The most esteemed members of the Adurim would even appear in diplomatic delegations. They were likely appointed based on wealth and merit, though we don't exactly know if they were elected or welcomed into the fold by some other means. They met in a large building near the major marketplace of the city, and the Suffite often sat in on these gatherings too. Sometime later in the 400s BC, after Himera of course, a vital change was made to the Adurim that further concentrated its power to the top. This was a special committee within the already selective body, known to us, thanks to Aristotle, as the Council of the 104. It was made up of the most prestigious statesmen of the Adrim, and you can trace its duties and powers all the way back to the disaster at Himera. For example, the members of the Council of the 104 were the same members of the Adrim that went on those diplomatic missions we mentioned earlier. They were the very face of the institution. Most important, though, was their iron grip on military affairs. The council had the literal power of life and death over generals and all other military commanders of importance. Any general who failed in battle could be publicly tortured and then crucified on the orders of the council, and they were famous for doing so. Just let that sink in for a little bit. Even the Romans, one of the most militaristic people in the ancient world, didn't go to such extremes. Try to imagine what that would be like today. I mean, it's hard to even picture because we're already so lenient with the blunders of our militaries, especially in the U.S., where I'm from. I mean, if we weren't, there wouldn't have been a war in Vietnam or, you know, two forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. To the generals of Carthage, this of course made their jobs incredibly high stress, as if things for anyone on an ancient battlefield weren't high stress enough, and they were known for being extremely cautious with their command. And incidentally, the suicide rate for generals was incredibly high. While this was sometimes a disadvantage to the Carthaginians, this emphasis on victory at all costs also contributed to some of the greatest military minds in history most notably Hamilcar and Hannibal Barca. 
a brand new addition to the government of post-Tamera Carthage was a body of people known as the People's Assembly, or in Punic, the Ham. The Ham was made up of Carthaginian citizens who represented the interests of everyone in the streets, well, at least everyone with a significant amount of wealth and power to be a citizen. This is the whole part that makes this system a republic, after all. In the simplest of terms, the Ham functioned as a tiebreaker for the Adurim and the Safites. But there's a reason I said the simplest of terms, though, because that might make you think that the Ham was just a consolation to the citizens and otherwise useless, which is how a lot of modern sources on Carthage seem to refer to it. But if you dig a little bit deeper, though, you can very clearly see that the Ham had a critical role in the operation of the state. For instance, as we mentioned earlier, any policy or course of action that Carthage enacted had to be ratified by both the Adurim and the Safids. Well, if that wasn't the case, guess where the vote went? That's right, it went to the Ham. The Ham also had the power to elect the magistrates and judges of the city, which could grant them a lot of under-the-table influence given the amount of bribery that was happening constantly. Furthermore, it seems that there was a great deal of respect for the Ham, and there were often times in Carthaginian history where things that had actually been agreed upon by both the Safites and the Adarim were still given to the Ham to approve, even though this was technically an unnecessary gesture. So, we've covered the three major political institutions of Carthage, you know, the Adarim, the Safites, and the Ham. But what about some of the more nitty-gritty details? I mean, the Adarim and the Safites couldn't do it all by themselves, right? Well, fortunately for them, they had a fine-tuned bureaucracy on their side. And to me, these lower-level civil servants and statesmen are just as interesting because if you lived in this system, you might have more day-to-day -day interaction with these people and their programs. How it worked was this. The duties of the Adarim were delegated to specialized committees made up of bureaucrats called Mehashbim. Mehashbim were basically financial ministers, your day-to-day -day problem solvers in government. The term translates roughly to accountant in Punic. Now Aristotle called these committees pentarchies, which is certainly a misnomer because that term suggests that there were only five-person affairs. In reality, we have records of so-called pentarchies that range from five to even thirty Mehashbim, depending on how complex their department was. Unfortunately, though, I wasn't able to find a Punic word for them, so instead, I'll just have to go with Aristotle's term. Sela Carthaginian history. The jurisdictions of these pentarchies range from taxation to public works programs to management of various temples to military organization. Additionally, being in charge of a pentarchy was itself a special position, known as a rab. These rab shared one-year terms like the Safids, though their mehashbim were, of course, in office much longer. Some examples of rab included one who was effectively the secretary of the treasury and oversaw all state expenditures and transactions, and another rab who was in charge of religious affairs. The same man could also hold multiple rab offices, which gives you some insight into how much power a single person could wield in Carthaginian government, and maybe how the Maganids were able to hold on to things for so long. It's probably a good time to mention that giving bribes was much less frowned upon in Carthage and was in some ways even integrated and accounted for in their system, 
This might lead us to believe that Carthage, especially in later years, was plagued by corruption, but perhaps we need to rethink our very definition of the word if we're to understand this quite mercantile culture. Of special interest to us is a particular office known as the Rab Mahanet. The Rab Mahanet oversaw the military matters and campaigns of a single army or theater. So, of course, there could be more than one of them. They commanded troops in battle when the Sufi wasn't interested in doing so, and when they did, they were punished severely, a nice way of saying crucified, by the Council of 104 for any failures. The Rab Mahanet, as you can probably guess, is the position I'm speaking of whenever I talk about a Carthaginian general. This, of course, means that both Melchus and Mago were some early version of Rab Mahanet before their further ascensions to power. Under all of these pentarchies and Mahashbim and Rab and all the rest, you had a plethora of different magistrates that dealt with the day-to-day -day legal work of the city, whether it be, you know, court cases like civil or criminal, etc., etc. Unfortunately, that's really all we can say about these positions, because unlike a state like Rome, we really don't have that much documentation on Carthaginian law, which is a real shame because we still live under Roman law to this day. Imagine what other types of legal traditions are out there that we're just missing. Well, that right there was a pretty exhaustive list of what we know about the Carthaginian Republic. A lot of these details, incidentally, come from a treatise by Aristotle who admired Carthage for what he thought was the most ideal government of his time. Others are from Roman sources, who of course dealt with the Carthaginians quite frequently in later years. This means that we only have the faintest outline of how the system functioned, the equivalent of a child's picture of their house compared to the detailed blueprint that we have of the Roman Republic thanks to the countless sources and archaeological evidence of its existence. That makes it easy to idealize the Carthaginian state like Aristotle did when you don't know the full extent of its flaws and intricacies. Carthage, though, like any other state, was made up of human beings. Imperfect, messy, diverse, conflicting human beings. And they did the best damn job they could. Nevertheless, what we have here is an intriguing case study, a portrait of a republic with similar principles to those we live under today that is completely divergent from Roman or Western history. And you can clearly see how the trajectory of this system emerged from the timeline that we covered in today's episode, ultimately culminating at Himera. To me, and I hope to all of you too, that's something that's worth studying. In future episodes, we'll be taking a look at other institutions that were present in Carthage during Maganid rule and beyond. Also coming up, we'll find out just how well this Carthaginian Republic can hold up against even more strife in the political snake pit that is Sicily. All of this and more next time on Wonders of History.